We've been working our way through the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 20, we have seen this thousand year period described, which is called the millennium period in theological terminology. And we have looked at things that will transpire during this time. Just a reminder, as we have approached the book, we have looked at this from the perspective that the millennial kingdom, the millennial period, is the time between the first and second coming of Christ, the time which we're now in, during which the martyred saints in heaven are reigning with Christ Jesus, the exalted Christ, who was exalted to the right hand of the Father as a result of his death, his burial, his resurrection. And we are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ, at which, when he returns bodily to this earth, He is going to raise the dead. There will be the judgment and the separation of the evil from the righteous. The evil will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be the recreation of this entire universe, new heavens and new earth, and the righteous will live in the new heavens and new earth forever. We look forward to that time as God's people. Well, in Revelation chapter 20, starting with verse 7, It says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So here we see that at the end of the age that we are in right now, this millennium age, that Satan is going to be unleashed so that he can go and deceive the nations and there's going to be a mass deception of the nations And then Christ will return and he will defeat all of his foes in one fell swoop. And Satan and all of his minions are going to be cast into the lake of fire. So evil is going to be removed from the cosmos. Evil will be put away forever. Today, I want to take the time to examine the question of the imminence of Christ's return in light of this text, in light of other texts in scriptures. What I mean by the imminence of Christ's return, should we expect that Jesus could come back at any time? Or are there things that have to yet take place on this earth before Jesus will come back? Let's consider that today. I want to, first of all, look at some definitive signs that the scriptures give that will precede, come before Christ's coming. And then I want to do a little comparison and contrast of two of the positions of the end times events, eschatology, and how they look at 
Christ's coming. And then I want to ask, how should we think and act in light of the fact that Christ is going to return? So this message hopefully will have some good practical application for us in it. But first of all then, are there some definitive signs in the scriptures that precede Christ's coming? Number one, we should remember that Jesus said nobody knows the day or the hour of his coming. All right. So whenever you, whenever you turn on the television and there's the next guy out there saying, I've done all the math. And if you look at the Bible, you see all of these secret numbers and everything else. And Jesus is coming, you know, and it's on May, whatever, 2000, whatever. You can say that guy doesn't have a clue what he's talking about, because even Jesus said, I don't know the day or the hour. All right. So what about no one knows the day or the hour? Do these guys not get, you know, anybody who stands up and says, I've got it figured out because the Bible says so is saying they know more than Jesus. And that's a big problem with me. But does the Bible give signs to look for regarding Christ's coming? Now, first of all, and I brought this out last week. Some of the things that people look to as signs predicting Christ's coming. Jesus said specifically these things indicate the end is not yet here. So what are some of the things that, that we hear? Well, there's a, another war going on. So that means Jesus must be close to returning. There's an earthquake over here. So that means Jesus must be coming. There's plagues and pestilences. So Jesus must be coming soon. There are false prophets and teachers. So Jesus must be coming within our lifetime. Well, you know, people have been saying that for 2000 years. And they somehow miss the fact that what Jesus said about those details in Matthew chapter 24 is that the end is not yet when you see these things happening. Okay, I'm going to read that again for you in Matthew chapter 24. And it says here, beginning in verse four. Matthew 24, 4, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. But we hear all the time people saying all these things indicate that the, the end is here. It's at hand. It's at the door. Well, that's not what Jesus said. So are there, though, any definitive signs in Scripture that would indicate that Jesus return would be very near? And I would propose that there are a couple that are much more definitive. OK. One, look over at Second Thessalonians two, three and four. It says here that there is someone who is called the man of sin or lawlessness and that he must be revealed. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Okay, and I, I want us to understand the context here. If we look to verse 1, 
of chapter 2. Notice the context. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. That's talking about his return, his second coming. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. Notice that. He's talking about the final return of Christ. The whole context thus far in the book has been about that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says Jesus Christ will come back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on the enemies of God. And then it transitions into this. And it says, I don't want you all to be concerned by these false teachers who are pretending to be messengers of God who say the day of God has already come. It's already passed. He says no. And then he gives a definitive couple definitive signs. And he says, these things must happen first. Now, you see, if these are not definitive signs, then why would he be giving them to people to say, no, Jesus has not come back because these things have not happened yet. You see? So these are definitive signs regarding the imminency of Christ's return. Notice what it says here. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Falling away there, that's where we get the word apostasy. Apostasy, in the case of Christianity, would be somebody that professes the faith and then they abandon the faith. They fall away from the faith. They apostatize. So this is saying that before Jesus comes that there will be a great apostasy or falling away from faith in Christ. What might that look like? Multiple churches, denominations who had professed the Lord abandoning the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who Jesus is. And perhaps embracing work salvation, for instance. Are we saved by works? Bible says we are not saved by works. We're saved by what? Grace through faith. And it's a gift of God. It's not a works lest any man should boast. And it's a false gospel to say that we're saved by what we do. So if someone who has professed faith in the Lord then embraces, well, you've got to get yourself right before God and it's your work that gets you saved then they've apostatized. They've fallen away from the faith. And, you know, there are entire denominations that have ceased to preach salvation by grace through faith in the history of the the Christian church. But see, this predicts a great falling away that has to come first before Jesus returns. Do, do, Do you see that? This is crystal clear. Furthermore, it says this, that the man of sin must be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So another definitive sign being given is that there is a man 
who will rise up and say, I am a messenger of God. And it goes on down in the text to say that he will do all kinds of lying signs and wonders. That means he's going to be doing actually miraculous works and saying, I am the messenger of God. And very probably in the context here of the falling away and this man of sin being revealed, he will be one who is leading many people astray into apostasy and they start following him rather than following the Lord. Commonly, he has been called the Antichrist and linked with 1 John chapter 2, where it says, Antichrist is coming. Even now there are many Antichrists in the world, but as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. So here are two definitive signs given in the very context of Jesus is not going to come back until these things happen first. And what are they? A great falling away from the faith and a leader rising up doing miracles and wonders and claiming to be a messenger of God, but yet being an enemy of God and leading people astray. Now, I link this together in some degree to Revelation chapter 20, 7 through 10. What happens when Satan is released? He goes out to deceive the nations. And in the deception of the nations, what will happen? A great falling away will happen, you see. So I believe that in this period we're in right now, Satan is bound But it says in Revelation 20, he's bound to deceive the nations no longer until the thousand year period is over. So it does not mean that Satan is completely inactive or have has no influence whatsoever, but he is not able to because he is restricted by God. He is not able to mass deceive all of the nations of the earth and bring about this great apostasy until the end of Christ, Christ's return is near and God's timetable has worked its way out in human history. Okay? So, this leads us to one other consideration. Two definitive signs here, apostasy, man of sin revealed. But then on the positive side, I believe the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 11 that there is going to be a revival amongst the Jewish people and that very likely within a generation or so, even amongst the ethnic Jewish people, that there will be a multitude of them that will turn to Christ as the Messiah and will be saved and will be brought in. And that this also must happen before Jesus returns because the scriptures say that this will happen. So look at Romans 11 for a moment. Romans chapter 11. Don't have time to exegete. Romans 9 through 11, the the whole text that this is in, but let's look at verses 25 and following. Romans 11, beginning in verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, the mystery of the Gentiles being brought into faith, 
lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, notice this, this is a time word, right? We're, we're trying to answer the, the when question here. This is a time word. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. Now, there are different interpretations even within the camp that I'm in, the Reformed camp, of these passages. One says that when it says all Israel will be saved, that's talking about spiritual Israel that includes Jews and Gentiles. I don't think that's a proper interpretation of the text. In Romans 9 through 11, whenever you see Israel mentioned, it is over and over and over again, ethnic Israel as compared with ethnic Gentiles, those who are not Israelites. And why it would switch at the end of the whole discussion, and now he's talking about spiritual Israelites who are not ethnic Israelites, when that term Israel has been applying to those who are Jewish every single time up to this point uh, wouldn't make any sense. So it is talking about ethnic Israelites. Others will interpret this and say this is talking about all of God's chosen Jews who will be saved throughout the period of time that we are in right now, this church age. So they'll say it's not talking about a revival amongst the Jewish people in the last days of this age, but it's talking about all the Jews that will be saved during this age. I don't think so either because of words like until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then notice this. It says in verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gift and calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And previously he had talked about how the Gentiles were grafted in, and the Jews had been broken off, but that God could regraft the Jews back in and bring them back in. And when is that going to happen? After this time of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles is fulfilled, God's going to bring them back in. So I believe this text teaches that there's going to be a revival amongst the Jewish people. Now, how are they going to be saved? They're going to look to Jesus. <laughs> They're not going to. They're not going to look to the to the law and look to the Old Testament sacrifices or any of those things which the Bible says could never wash away sin. But they will look to Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah, and they will bow before Him, and they will then be united with all of us who are Gentiles ethnically, who are saved in Christ, and will be one big happy family. Praise the Lord for that. But in regard to the question of imminency, I think the Bible teaches then these things have to take place before Jesus comes back. Now, one system of eschatology, the dispensational system, believes in the secret rapture. And that is that Christians are going to be secretly swooshed out of this, this earth. And 
In the movies, it's depicted as piles of clothes lying on the floor and, and people who are driving the cars, and so their cars are crashing and planes are going down and all of this because Christians have all been zoop, removed from, from the world. As, already, as we have already examined, the Bible does not teach that perspective. According to especially the dispensational perspective, the imminency of Christ's return has been taught very stridently that Jesus at any time, basically, after his ascension, could have returned. Well, he could not have returned at any time after his ascension. Because he told his disciples that the temple would be destroyed before he came back. So there was a definitive sign that they were looking for that this has to happen before he comes back. So the idea of absolute imminency and from the time that Jesus has gone up, be watching because he could come back any minute without anything happening to take place first on this earth has never been the case. That's never been the case. But I know you guys are thinking people, so you're, you're saying, well... Okay, definitive signs, falling away, man of sin revealed, Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. Does that mean Jesus can't come back today? Does that mean the return of Christ is not imminent to us right now as we're right here? A couple thoughts on that. One, some of these things are kind of hard to quantify. Great apostasy, falling away. Have we seen that? Is that going on? Or is it not going on? It's a little bit hard to quantify in some respects, right? I mean, in one respect, if you think about it, folks, the majority of churches that you would step into in the United States of America are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's just a fact. They're not. The majority of churches are not going to preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, call people to repentance of their personal sins, teach you that you must come to faith in Christ and bow before him to be saved by grace through faith and take a righteous stand on issues such as what is murder, what is immoral, and what is not immoral. But the majority of these churches would never confront anyone within their congregation with sin out of love. They're just going to preach feel-good messages every single Sunday and never dig into the Word and really tell people the truth from the Word about who Jesus is and what He's accomplished. And entire denominations have fallen to things like social gospel, that the gospel is really about just helping people not be poor in life and giving them a, a leg up materially. Okay, so the question is, has a great apostasy taken place? Well, it's a little bit hard to quantify. What about the man of sin being revealed? Is the man of sin out there somewhere right now? He could be. He could be. Who is he, though? In some sense, I'm saying at this point, 
just in my looking at human history and looking at these things, well, I don't know that these things are all on the scene right now. What about the ethnic Jewish people? I don't see a mass revival amongst the ethnic Jewish people turning to Christ right now. I don't. I don't see one individual dynamic ruler that is leading people to apostatize from the faith and doing miracles, miraculous signs as evidence that he is, in fact, this one mentioned. But here's something to realize, folks. How quickly can these things transpire, even if they're not happening right now? How quickly could transpire very, very fast indeed? So one, I'm, I'm not going to dogmatically say that Jesus absolutely could not come back today. Perhaps some of these things are taking place, although it doesn't look like it exactly in fulfillment of these signs right now. But two, does this mean he's not coming back within our lifetimes? You know, uh, it, it could be thousands of years yet before he comes. Well, it could be thousands of years before he comes, but... I can't say with any definitiveness that it must be a long period of time before he comes because these things can transpire just like that. Just like that. Okay? We're going to move on to our second point. And our third point, we're going to talk a little bit more about how this all affects us and how we think and how we live day in and day out. Okay? But that's point number one. Definitive signs things that must take place, the scriptures say, before Jesus returns. And even with these definitive signs being given, clearly nobody can still guess the day or the hour that it's going to happen, right? So, point number two, comparison and contrast of two different positions in regard to this question even of imminence. When is Jesus coming back? And I want to look at postmillennialism and amillennialism. Okay? Remember, I've been preaching from an amillennial perspective that we're during this millennial kingdom right now. Postmillennialism says Jesus will return after the millennium period. Well, interestingly, amillennialism says Jesus is going to return after this millennial period. And amillennialism, up until the 1900s, was called postmillennialism. So I'm going to talk about in a minute, what are the distinctives then between on and post-mill? First of all, we amillennialists don't like the term amillennialism, but we're stuck with it. <laughs> That's just, <laughs> we, we, we're like, let's propose something else, you know, realize millennium, something good, something positive. But the fact of the matter, everybody knows it by amillennialism, so we use the term, all right? Um, but ah means no millennium. Well, have I taught and do you hear any amillennials teaching that there's no millennium? No, of course not. Of course not. It was probably our opponents that gave us that term. But things in common with these two views. We both see Jesus coming at the end, his bodily, physical return, at the end of the period described in Revelation chapter 20, the thousand year period. Not before. What's the view that describes Jesus coming as before that period? You remember? How about premillennialism? Because he comes pre the thousand year period. 
So what are the main differences then between post-millennialism and amillennialism? There is one primary difference between these two. And I'm going to read from one of their own authors describing the central component of their position that distinguishes us. This is from the writings of Kenneth Gentry as quoted by Sam Storms. And I quote, Postmillennialism expects the proclaiming of the spirit-blessed gospel of Jesus Christ to win the vast majority of human beings to salvation in the present age. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of people and of nations. After an extended era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily, and in great glory, ending history with the general resurrection, the great judgment of all humankind. Hence, says Gentry, our system is post-millennial and that the Lord's glorious return occurs after an era of millennial conditions. So notice this, post-millennialism says righteousness, godliness is going to increase, 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 increase in this world to the degree that there will be a golden era on earth ushered in in which all the nations are going to be Christianized. The majority of people on the entire earth are going to be saved and there will be peace on earth, literally peace on earth, no wars, no fighting amongst nations until then a short period of time when Satan is released, the nations rise up and then Jesus comes back and destroys them at his coming. Okay? Without that, Postmillennial hope, as they call it, and the idea of the golden era, there is no postmillennialism. That is their primary distinctive from the other positions. Because all the premillennial positions and the amillennial position say we don't see the Bible teaching such a golden era on earth in this age before the bodily return of Jesus Christ. Before the bodily return of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, amillennialism, though, on the other hand, believes, yes, that the gospel has power to save and to advance. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And amillennialism recognizes as well the biblical teaching that even by the, by the time of around A.D. 60, just 30 years or so after Jesus completed his work and ascended, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, the gospel has gone forth to the entire known world. All of the Roman Empire had been influenced by the gospel at that time. So what had happened? The power of Satan to deceive the nations has been bound and the gospel goes forth. But does the gospel go forth by a church triumphant who is not facing suffering and increasing in 
peace and lessening suffering. No, the gospel goes forth. As it has been said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The gospel goes forth in persecution and opposition. As a matter of fact, historically, the times when the church has been strongest and has grown the most has been under opposition. So, amillennialism does not see this golden era in Scripture, but it sees that during this age that we live in, we should expect, expect opposition. We should expect persecution. That we are a suffering church. But yet, this does not mean that in any given community or even any given state or nation in the world at any given time during this era that God's word cannot go forth with great power and there be awakening and there can even be transformation at the governmental levels where justice and righteousness is greater is implemented in greater form. So there's there's an optimism there. I'm not saying at all that I'm teaching and the Bible teaches that woe is us. It doesn't matter what we do. We can't have any influence on this world whatsoever. So we should just sit back, let go, let God and hallelujah, you know, and he's going to get us all out of here one day. Not at all. We should be at work and we should be at work confident that we can glorify God no matter what our circumstances but that we can influence our communities for the gospel of Christ. We can influence our nation for the gospel of Christ and justice can go forth. But I'm just looking at it realistically from the scriptures and we're going to look at some scriptures here to support this. Does that mean that there's going to be a point in time for an extended period of time, at least a thousand years where all of the nations on the entire globe are going to be Christianized and it is absolutely the norm for Christians not to face any persecution at the hands of unbelievers, not to suffer because they're the vast majority. They're in control and everything is hunky dory. I don't think the Bible teaches that. OK, that's a primary distinctive between post mill and amill. in regard to the question of the imminency of Christ's return. How do you think it affects the idea of when can Jesus come back? If you're a post-millennialist and you believe that there has to be at least a 1,000 year period of absolute peace and prosperity over the whole globe before Jesus can return. Is Jesus returned anywhere even close according to post-millennialism? Absolutely not and it cannot be because there's no post-millennialist realistically who's going to look out and say, we're in the golden era right now. No. You just take the two most populous nations on the face of the globe, China and India. Are they influenced for Christ? Are they like shining examples, beacons to the entire world of justice and mercy and peace and spiritual prosperity? No, and what? Their population combined is probably more than the rest of the globe combined, right? But yet they're in absolute darkness in those nations with Christians shining little candles here and there. Yes, but as nations, they're corrupt. Their governments are corrupt. They oppress their people. Wickedness prevails. All right? So this is just a reality. As we examine these positions, 
Postmillennialists do not believe Jesus could come back at any time. And you will not hear a postmillennialist pray, Lord Jesus, come within my lifetime. Because they cannot pray it. They cannot pray that. It's, you will never. I, I was listening to a message by a pastor and said, I've been ministering for 46 years. I have prayed with postmillennialists. He said, I have never heard them pray, Lord Jesus, come back. Because they can't pray that. Because they don't believe he can come back for at least a thousand years. And I think that undermines the many texts in Scripture that support that we and even the apostles teaching people during the first century, teaching them, be ready because Jesus could come back. So be watching. You see? So that's one line of evidence against the post-millennial position. Even the apostles teaching people, be watching, be ready. Why are you going to tell people be watching for Jesus' return if his return is well over a thousand years away? You're going to be dead long gone before Jesus gets back, right? Okay, now, obviously, though, since this is a... uh, one of the historical positions, there have been many proponents and many wise and godly people who have been proponents of postmillennialism. So, do they have any scriptural support for their position? Of course they do. They're not just pulling this out of thin air, right? So, what do they see as support? And here's something that I've mentioned before, but folks, this is essential in your study of the scriptures. We need to get this as we study the word of God. Do you want to be able to study and read and understand the word? Okay. Well, one, of course, you have to have the Holy Spirit to help you do that because you can't do it on your own. But two, if you're abusing the scriptures and you're not reading them the way the Lord wants you to read them, then you're going to come up with a whole lot of mistakes as you look at the Bible. And so one thing that is very important to understand as you look at Scripture is that there are many, many teachings in Scripture that will have, and we'll use an illustration of train tracks. They have parallel tracks that present two different ideas that one has to consider both of those ideas and understand how they work together and how they're running in the same direction. Otherwise, you're going to derail as you try and understand the scriptures. All right? Again, a train, is it going to be able to run on one rail? If it goes off the one rail, it's got two. If it goes off one of those rails, is it going to be able to run very far on one rail? It's going to wreck. Okay? The scriptures so often present different rails to the same doctrines that have to be understood in their proper context. One such example is the teaching about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Those are two different rails. The Bible both teaches that God is in control of all things in this universe and there is nothing that happens that catches God off guard and that he does not control. But it also teaches that we human beings are responsible for the choices we make 
And we cannot blame God when we sin because God doesn't make us sin. Both of those tracks, both of those rails are in the scriptures. If people get on the sovereignty side of things and ignore the man's responsibility side of things, they derail. Because then they move to something like fatalism and they say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it. God's got everything in control anyway, and I'm not responsible. So I'm going to just do whatever I want to do. But on the flip side, if people emphasize man's responsibility too much and they don't emphasize God being in control, then they dishonor God and they lead people to despair because they don't see how God is at work through the situations and circumstances in their lives. Like from Ruth, what we're talking about this morning. So, two different tracks. What are the two different tracks that affect the issues, the issue at hand between amillennialism and postmillennialism that both of us have to interpret properly in the scriptures and see how they run together, how they harmonize? Because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Okay? If we think there's a contradiction, it's just us. It's not recognizing how the Bible is consistent. Here are the two different tracks. There's a track of positive scriptures and a track of negative scriptures. The positive scriptures that the post-millennialists look to are primarily from the prophets. From the prophets. I'm going to read a, a list of these scriptures. You won't have time to turn to each one, but you'll see, you'll hear what these scriptures teach. Psalm chapter 2. Brother Rick read a portion of Psalm 2 to us. 6 through 9. And at one point it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. Psalm 22, 27, and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 86, 9 through 10. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Psalm 102, verse 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, where it goes on to say, He shall judge between the nations, decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Passages such as Two parables in Matthew chapter 13 about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than the garden plants. It becomes a great tree, so the birds of the air come and make a nest in its branches. And then the parable in verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that say that Christ must reign in verse 25 until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death, you see. So these are very positive passages. They speak about people from around the world and even 
kings and nations from around the world coming and worshiping Jesus. But there's another track in Scripture of very negative passage passages. These primarily in the New Testament Scriptures. Galatians 6 1 says this is a present evil age. Some of you remember we've looked at the two ages in Scripture in the biblical timeline. This age is characterized by certain things. It's characterized by death. It's characterized by sin. It's characterized by evil as an evil age. It's characterized by marriage. <laughs> Interesting that one's thrown in there. But Jesus says, in the age to come, we'll be like the angels of heaven. There'll be no marriage or giving in marriage in the age to come. And when does this age end? It comes when Jesus, it ends when Jesus comes back. Well, the Bible teaches in the New Testament, there are many passages that say that believers should expect to suffer at the hands of unbelievers. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say in Matthew chapter 5, 11 through 12? He says, rejoice. It's in the Beatitudes, you know, all the blessed statements there. But then it says, blessed are you when people revile you and speak evil of you for my name's sake and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad in that day when they do that. In Romans chapter 8, it says that we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him. In Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus speaks about the gate and the way that leads to destruction. And he says it's easy and there are many who end up following the road to destruction and are destroyed. But that the road to eternal life, the gate is narrow and the way is difficult. And how many people does he say? Few. Few there are who find it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 that we've already examined, it talks about, or uh, we looked at 2 Thessalonians 3, but 2 Timothy 3 talks about evil men growing worse and worse as the end times progress. So you have these two different lines of text, you see, in the, both in the Bible. And both amillennialism and postmillennialism are trying to answer a specific question. Guess which question it is? Of the, of the questions of journalists. Remember the questions journalists ask? W questions, right? Who, what, where, when, how, why? There's an H in there, but... Which question? The when question. The when question. Are any of us saying that the positive texts in the prophets, those aren't going to happen? That's Old Testament, you just throw that out. No. no, but the question is, when? When will these things happen, right? That's what we're trying to understand. The negative text, clearly it is saying things like, evil people are going to grow worse and worse. Right. Clearly it's saying, few there are who find it. But the question is, when? When? 
And so what happens with these two different approaches to interpreting these two different tracks? Here's what happened. The post-millennialist takes all of these negative texts and they say these texts either only speak about the conditions of Jesus' immediate hearers before A.D. 70. Or they only speak about the end of the Golden Age millennium when Satan is released. But they don't speak about the millennium period. Okay, you see? That's how they answer the when questions. So how do they answer things like, few there are who find the way to eternal life, when they say in their own writings that the vast majority of humanity is ultimately going to be saved? Well, they have to say, Jesus' statement only refers to his immediate listeners. It's only that generation of people there that he's talking to of which few will be saved. So they limit it in time. You see, the when question is a crucial question in answering this debate, this issue. And understanding Christ's coming and what's going to happen when he comes. The when question and how do how do these things, how do we harmonize them? Well, what does the amillennialist then do with the, the positive statements in the prophets and in, in the parables? The positive statements from the prophets, the amillennialist says, these can refer uh, to two different things realistically. Either it's material, physical terminology to speak about the spiritual realities of what happened when Jesus was exalted. So spiritually in the hearts of God's people, they beat their plow or beat their swords into plowshares and all of these things. So peace was brought about by the work of Jesus. Or, and most of the text, I believe this is a better interpretation. These texts actually refer to the conditions in the new heavens and the new earth. When God brings in peace and prosperity. Now, being fair, the premillennialists will see them as referring to the millennium kingdom. But we've already examined that, and I'll try and get that sermon up on sermon audio. Okay. But how do we how do we resolve then this issue of the, the positive rail of scripture, the negative rail in scripture? How do we harmonize these texts? It comes down to hermeneutics. It really does. Which texts are you going to use to help you understand the when question? And that's a matter of hermeneutics. How do you interpret the scriptures? Every amillennialist that I've ever met says, I hope post-millennialists are right about a golden era. They're like, yeah, that, that would be nice. But then they say, but I, I just don't see it yet because of all these negative texts in scripture. One of the weakness, weaknesses in post-millennialism is which text do they use and give predominance to in answering the wind question? Primarily Old Testament prophetic texts, which are notoriously harder to interpret than clear teaching passages in the New Testament. 
because they contain figurative language like moon turning to blood and stars falling from the heavens and things of that sort. And because it can be hard to answer the when question because are they referring to things that would happen at Jesus' first coming or his second coming? You see, and even the Jewish scholars during Jesus' day had difficulty And one of the big difficulties with the Pharisees and others who are reading the scriptures and trying to figure out when is Messiah and is Jesus Messiah was that they took they saw passages that talked about what would happen at Jesus second coming as referring to when the Messiah would come the first time. And so they saw a conquering king, Messiah, who would come in and defeat their enemies, the enemies of Rome and raise up the messianic kingdom on earth. But that's not happening until Jesus comes back the second time. So you see, the prophetic texts are notoriously difficult to interpret the when question. But yet postmillennialists give priority to those texts over this preponderance of New Testament texts that talk about things such as suffering in the church and facing hardship and few there are who find it. The way to everlasting life. Okay? In the New Testament, they have to focus primarily on two parables. Parables are notoriously difficult to interpret. When it comes down to it, right? Those are harder to interpret than others. And they focus on two parables that don't have interpretation by Jesus himself. So think about those two parables that I read just a moment ago. One, the parable of the kingdom of heaven being like bread dough that has yeast added to it and the yeast spreads throughout the entire loaf and that the kingdom of God is like that. You see, the post-millennials would say, see, this preaches that the whole world is going to be Christianized because the kingdom is going to spread throughout the world and the whole world will be at peace and it'll be Christianized. But is that what the parable is teaching? Let me let me ask you this: If you put if you put new bakers, if a, a normal sized loaf of bread, how much yeast are you going to put in that? Half a teaspoon. Is that a lot or a little? That's a little. But if you put half a teaspoon of yeast, how much flour are you going to put in an average sized loaf of bread? Somebody help me out there. Three or four cups of flour. Is that is that more wheat flour if you're using wheat, if you're gluten-free using something else? But is that using more flour than yeast? Yes. Does the loaf then become a yeast loaf? Is there more yeast than there is the rest of the loaf? No. The picture of the parable is perm- permeance. The, the yeast goes through the whole loaf. Is there any, is there any part of the loaf that, that doesn't have yeast in it that has gone into it? No. But does it become a yeast loaf? I think the post-millennialists are saying it, this world becomes a yeast loaf with just a little bit of wheat in it. And they're gluten-free, so wheat's bad. You see what I'm saying? But what does that parable teach? It's teaching that the gospel is going to spread throughout the entire world. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 says the gospel has gone to the entire world already. 
And so tie this together with, in Revelation, it says there'll be some saved from every kindred tribe and tongue in the new heavens and new earth. So there's, there's an optimism of the gospel and God's elect being from all nations. And that's why we, that's why we collect money in this little congregation here and we send it to guys in Indonesia. Because we believe that they're promoting the work of the Lord and that people can be saved. But does that parable, is that just the clincher and that say, well, absolutely, there's going to be this golden era? No. The same with the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom starts out small. 120 disciples praying. The Holy Spirit falls. 3,000 that day are saved. And then the gospel goes forth from there. But does that mean that there's going to be an era of absolute peace and prosperity, a golden age on the entire earth? None of these texts in the New Testament teach that. So they have to rely on Old Testament prophetic text, which can be speaking about the new heavens and the new earth, you see. So where is the emphasis of the New Testament? What has the emphasis in the book of Revelation been? Believers should expect to suffer at the hands of evil people. Do not think it a strange thing concerning the fiery trial that will come upon you. Those who live godly in Christ will face persecution. You will be an heir and a joint heir with Christ if indeed you suffer with him. The Apostle Paul says that I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Over and over and over again, the New Testament teaches resoundingly that the church will triumph in this world, not by conquest, so that there are no more unbelievers rising up against the church, but that the church will triumph through suffering. Because it'll be a spiritual triumph. And you see, that's what God has chosen to do. Could God choose to be glorified by the entire world before Jesus coming back being Christianized? I don't see why he couldn't choose that. But could God also choose to be glorified by his people who they know if they say, I'm a follower of Jesus, that people are going to hate them, going to spit on them going to try and destroy their lives, going to try and ruin their families and destroy their businesses, throw them in jail, beat them, and even execute them. And yet people say, do your worst. I will not bow to you. And God gets maximum glory in the midst of all of that. God gets glory through it, and his people increase in faith through it. Because the reality is this, folks. I've never yet encountered someone, maybe there are people out there, I've never yet encountered someone who has told me, my faith has grown leaps and bounds when I had no difficulties in my life. That's when when my faith has grown, is when everything was perfect and I had no trials, no suffering. That's when I grew closer to Jesus. I've never had anyone tell me that. But people say, I grew closer to the Lord When I had to turn to him, when things were falling apart, when death was staring me in the face, when material or financial prosperity was diminished or in question, I had to look to the Lord then. And the Lord deepened my faith in a way through that, that he had in no other way in my life. 
That's the testimony of Christians throughout the ages. And that's what we should expect. And passages, let's look, look look at Matthew chapter 7. Is, is this just Jesus saying, you people right here in front of me, this is the way it is for you, but for people down the road for well over a thousand years, this does not apply to them in any shape whatsoever? I don't think you can get this from this text. This is Matthew 7 talking about the way. The two ways of life, one life and one death, and beginning in verse 13. But think about this. What's the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount, folks? It starts off, it talks about what are the characteristics of people in the kingdom? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my namesake. Does that only apply to generations of believers who will actually face those types of things? But they're going to be, there's going to be thousands or thousands of years where nobody faces any of that? I don't think I don't think so. What about all of the ethical standard Jesus gives in Sermon on the Mount? Is he saying this is just for you guys right now, but this doesn't apply to generations down the road? No, the whole context of the message is these are truths that go throughout. And notice what Jesus says in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Does that sound anything like Jesus is saying, but this only applies in certain generations. This doesn't apply across the board. Does it sound anything like Jesus saying, this is temporal, but there's going to be a time when it's going to be easy to to get in. It's going to be easy. And there will be many Oh, by the way, there's an age coming in which there will be many, not few. He's not talking like that. He's not talking like that. Clearly, this is our experience. Do you see people that are on the broad path to destruction and it's easy for them and they're just coasting, going with the flow? I, I had a guy tell me, my philosophy in life is I'm just going with the flow. You know, if people oppose me or whatever. I just find the path of least resistance. You know what I told him? Path of least resistance leads to hell. (laughs) You know what happens if you coast in this life? You roll off the cliff into hell. There's no coasting in this life. We got to fight. The Bible says we're in a war. The church militant will be the church triumphant when Jesus returns. And then we have peace. But for now we suffer. For now we suffer. And we should not think it's strange if we suffer. We should not think that the church is not doing her job if people suffer in this life. Now do I want people to... Do I want people... To be unjustly sentenced in our court systems. No, I do not. And I'll oppose that. Do I want babies to be murdered in our country? No, I do not. And I will oppose that. 
And like I said, we can make headway against these things temporarily in our society. So we don't throw up our hands and say, it's all going to hell in a hand basket so nobody do anything. But, am I surprised by these things? No, I am not. Evil men will grow worse and worse. How should we live? Martin Luther said, when asked, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? He said, I'd plant a tree. I once quoted that favorably, and then I got thinking about that over this past week, and was like, no, Ryan, what would you, what would you, Ryan, do if you knew? Now, we can't. I'm not saying we can. You know that. But if I knew Jesus was coming back in 24 hours, I thought, what would I do? In regards to myself, I'd be repenting like mad. (laughs) I'd be pleading with the Lord like mad. Forgive me for my sins, Lord. I want to be found ready when you come. And in regard to my loved ones that I know are lost, I would not sleep for 24 hours and I would be calling everyone and pleading with them with tears. Be saved. Be saved. Jesus is coming and you're going to face his wrath. But don't fear, I'm not beating you over the head with that and saying that's how you ought to live right now. Because if you did, you couldn't go do your jobs tomorrow and provide for your families. You couldn't go home and wash your dishes. I mean, I can go for 24 hours without eating. How about you? I can go for 24 hours without sleeping. How about you? My family could get by for 24 hours without me doing my my other duties. How about yours? It's kind of like if you have a loved one who is lost and they're lying in hospice gasping for breath and they've got 24 hours to live. Is your sense of urgency for their soul going to increase at that point? Realistically, yes. I mean, you can't be you can't be calling them and talking to them 24 hours a day for 20 years pleading with them to be saved, right? So there's this both and. Do we just ignore the fact that Jesus can come back within our lifetimes and not be found watching and and not take seriously all the admonitions in Scripture? No, absolutely not. But at the same time, can we go out and do our jobs? Can we share a meal together here? Can we go play a game of baseball with our kids and enjoy that and still bring glory to God? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And so our labor is not in vain as long as we're doing it for the Lord. And even a little bit of recreation. Because, again, I don't know about you guys, I can't go without sleep for 24 hours, three or four times in a row without getting a little crazy. I can't work 18 to 20 hours a day every single day of my life for a couple years without losing touch and destroying my physical health, right? So, you see, it's a, it's a both end. Could Jesus return very, very soon? Absolutely, he could. When will he return? I can't, I can't say exactly. 
According to one system of eschatology, it's within our lifetimes, absolutely. I've heard many pastors stand up and preach, it's going to happen in our, our lifetime. I can't say that. But it could. And let's all be ready if he does come. Father, thank you for the time we've had to consider these matters. We pray that Christ will be glorified in it, that we will have right attitudes in it all. We pray that you will bless the rest of our time we have together today, our time of fellowship, our meal time together. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.